what a welcome. <laughs> this is such an honor, speaking to Eastgate. Can you hear me okay? I've got a bit of a head cold. Um, and the first thing I want to say is a big thank you to Eastgate Church. My, my wife and I have come to the school, uh, I think we started in 2015, uh, that's my wife there. You may recognize her. She's the poster girl of the video, you know. <laughs> One who climbs the rocks. Um, it's been phenomenal. It's, uh, as they say these days, rock now world. Um, and it's because of you, because of the faithful brothers and sisters at Eastgate who've invested in the school, so thank you. Um, yeah, I'm a third year, 66 year old intern. That's, <laughs> that feels wrong. <laughs> um, so what I have been asked to speak tonight is about the spirit or the art of self-leadership. And there's so much that's set me up. Is Fiona here? It's Fiona Gilpin. She's got a, a phrase called, it's a setup. Tim, your preach this morning was a setup, uh, and talking about the uh, the school of the spirit, I very much want to talk about that, and what you said, Elias, and and the songs that you led us through, Chris and team. It's all of a piece, so it's easy for me to slip into this now. But let me start by um, just giving you a little bit of business by saying that in that song a hundred billion times I think there was a line there that says all nature and science follows the sound of your voice and I want you to remember that because this might sound a bit businessy to start with but the kingdom's all over it okay so uh, I've got the flip chart here because I've had several bad hair days with technology um, a few years ago when I was leading a, a training and management consultancy business in project-led change, we heard some chatter over the internet and it went like this. What if we could get into the minds of high performers? What if we could get their mental crib sheet, you know, their checklist, and what if we could write that down? Then the rest of us could follow it and get the same results. So we thought we'd test that. In our field, we got together as many volunteer program and project managers together as we could. And uh, they had to give us access to their line managers because we needed to test independently how good they were. And we tested the question... Do the high performers in this group have a mental crib sheet, a checklist, a mental checklist, and is it the same? Well, they sort of did have a mental checklist, but the bad news was it was all different. <laughs> but at least we proved something. But a lot we found we made some interesting discoveries. And we tracked these people for a six-week period. We were particularly interested in what they actually did rather than what they said. 
And this is what we discovered. That these high performers all had a high degree of self-awareness. Well, what does that mean? It means that they thought about their thinking. They reflected on their successes and their failures. And they treated their own thinking as a work in progress. All right? The second thing that we found that separated them from the pack, we're talking about the top 8 to 12%, really. The second thing was that these people all had a leaning to people. Well, that's interesting because our profession would use language which reduces people to resources. They're just things that you use to get the project done. But these people spent time with key individuals around their change. Another thing we found was that these people were experimental. They had a leaning to action. It was interesting, Tim, you showed a video this morning about... Um, where's he gone? Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm not used to people leaving my preach that early. <laughs> Um, But you showed a video on failure from Will Smith. Yeah, these people were experimental. They tried things out. They had a leaning to action. The rest of us were a little bit more hesitant about these things. But the final thing was, when we looked at these people's work week, they all had personal margins. We could measure this in time. We could see that these people kept unbookable periods of time. And when we we asked them, they felt a little irritated. It was obvious. Life was uncertain. They needed something in reserve for the unexpected. The rest scheduled themselves up to the hilt. Um, So when the unexpected came, they had three strategies. They worked late. They worked weekends or stuff just got forgotten never did get round to it, but not so the high performers. They had this resilience, these personal margins. I've got here a little um, visual aid to show you what I think it looks like. Have you seen one of these tile games, you know, where you sort the numbers? Well, modern management theory would look at that and say, yeah, very good, but we could actually pack another tile in there. (laughs) As soon as you do that, You've frozen the system in place. And yet, organizations do that again and again and again. They think that's waste. No, that's resilience, that's agility. And if we're to reign in life, we need to look after our reserves of time, energy, space, finances even. So... I got stirred up about this, particularly as I was taken through the excellent teaching from uh, Kim and Pete and David and others in the first year. And I started to write this this book called Leading Yourself. And um, let me just show you another picture. I'll draw this one in a different color. If you think of 
our spirits like this. This is just a picture. It's not reality. There's always a problem with pictures like this. But here's our spirit. Here's our soul. Now in scripture, our soul is our intellect, our emotions, the stuff that scientists think is located in the brain. And then of course there's the body. We're made of body, soul, and spirit. In my book, I was writing to a general audience, business audience, work audience, so I could write freely about how you lead yourself from the inside out, from the soul to the body. But until tonight, I've never really gone public on what I think is the spirit of self-leadership, which I think, Tim, is key. So, if we're to reign in life, we need to lead ourselves. We need to do that. It says in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When I first was zapped by the Holy Spirit, when I first encountered the Holy Spirit, I was happy for the Holy Spirit to do it all. But I very quickly learned that there are parts of, our, of the Christian walk that he allows us to do. It's part of our freedom. It's a part of, part of the invitation to maturity. So this soul transformation is something that actually comes from the word and the spirit. What's interesting is we get confused about when we're, talk, when we're told you're a new creation. Okay? I don't really see the new creation. This is the part of us that is made new. This is perfect. This is clothed in righteousness. But more than that, it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit allows us to have this, our spirits uncontaminated. We carry around the Holy Spirit as a temple. And that word about a revelation of our full potential, this is where it is. This is where it is. So our business is to lead ourselves in life transformation from the inside out, from the Spirit. So in the, in the next few minutes, what I want to do is, is just quickly illustrate how the world has a take on this. And religion takes a lot of cues from how the world says you live superior life. And then I want to contrast that with the kingdom way. Very simply. I mean, there's a lot more to this than we can cover in a few minutes. And then finally, I want to show how that plays out on the world stage. Is that okay? So, and I need more flip chart. I really want to attribute Leif Hetland. Has anybody heard of Leif Hetland? Yeah, amazing Baptist pastor. Lovely guy who's personally led a million Pakistani Muslims to Christ. Phenomenal man. And, you know, he carries himself with such ease. He speaks with such ease. But he talks about 
this sequence, and this is the world sequence. To get anywhere, you have to do something. And if you work hard enough, you'll get something. You'll get stuff. You get a nice house, nice partner, nice children, nice car. And then when you have all that stuff, you'll be somebody. Yeah? You see where I'm going with this? Religion isn't so different. Performance religion is not so different. Um, I had a job from hell a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I didn't. I saw it as an opportunity at the time, but <laughs> um, it, it was in the. Uh, I was fairly young then. It was in the mid 80s. I got a job, a fairly senior job, in a local authority uh, for their computer software development. And at that time, I could see I could do that job. I needed to learn a few things, but I could do it. We had three major systems to look after, a major project. And the thing is, in the local authority sector, some of you may know this, they complicate things enormously. So these systems, <laughs> I'm serious, these systems are complex. So, for example, in a private sector organization, you might have two pay scales. In a local authority, you have 21. Okay? And it's just the way the law is. So it's very, very complicated. But I could do three systems. And in actual fact, a month after I joined, that job blew up in my face because there were, I think, 21 other systems being looked after by another local authority. And that partnership agreement ended, which meant we had 18 months to bring those 21 systems back in or replace them. So suddenly my job got very exciting. <laughs> and it was not a culture of honor. It was not a safe place. Uh, I couldn't trust even my boss. You know, it was, it was scary at times. And I would go up in the uh, elevator in the morning. It wasn't a very long ride in the elevator. But it was private. And it was enough time for me to say my best prayer, which was, God, give me courage, wisdom, and strength. Courage, wisdom, and strength. Now, that's a good prayer. With hindsight, it was a good prayer, because four years later, I left that job, and I left the local authority in a better state, much better state. And I left, if it were a Christian organization, I left with a blessing. But... Do you know what? When you pray for courage, when you pray for wisdom, when you pay, pray for that kind of strength, it doesn't feel like you've received it. It doesn't feel it. But with hindsight, I was hugely blessed with courage, wisdom, and strength. But it was still within this mindset that I had to perform, that I had to perform that way. Let me tell you about the kingdom way. Outside, as you come in the entrance, there is an engraved stone. Does anybody know what it says? Seek first the kingdom. That's from Matthew 6. Yeah? 
It's in the context of Jesus commanding that we do not worry. I used to think that that was just pastoral advice. I now conceive that the commandment is a commandment to be lived and we can have a life exempt of anxiety. We can. Because we have the Holy Spirit within us. We are invited to worship a God as we just have been doing and we uncover more and more of his goodness and love to us. What Hedlund says is that this is from an orphan spirit. If we look closely at Matthew 6, the context is very clear. We'll read from verse 32. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father. What's our relationship with him? Our heavenly Father. It's in that relationship we know that he knows our practical needs. He knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not do not worry. I mean, if you look at the one number of times it says in that passage from about verse 25, how many times he says, do not worry. It's really interesting. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So, this is what Hetland says now. He says that the kingdom way starts with B. And then we realize what we have, what we already have. And it's on that basis that we go out and do. This is a complete shift of thinking about how we handle work, how we handle life. This is identity because we are nothing less than sons and daughters. Try not speak to the flip chart because I think I'm giving some bounce back. This is our inheritance. I have credit cards in my pocket. Even if I've got no cash, I feel okay because I can draw on those credit cards or or debit cards, or whatever. How much more can I draw on my father's resources when I have need? Because I am a son. Reigning in life means walking in faith. Faith that we are much loved sons. I, mean, I was just thinking when you were talking about Jesus came out of the baptismal waters. At that point in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, it was right at the beginning, and Father says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. The boy had done nothing. (laughs) I don't mean to be irreverent, but I need to make the point. Jesus had not performed. He's well pleased with Jesus. And you know what my heart's desire had been, David? 
for years that when I got to see the Lord face to face, he'd say, well done. He said to me tonight, you don't need to wait. (laughs) Right? I do not need to wait because I'm a beloved son. And he's saying over all of us, sons and daughters, well done. Well done. Don't let the evil one snatch that from you. You'll say, I haven't done anything. No, 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 it's who you are. Well done. This totally destroys the performance mindset. Totally destroys the performance mindset. And the world needs to hear this. This this is about scarcity. This is about being fabulously rich. We are all fabulously rich. If you look through the New Testament, you'll see this pattern more often than anything else. Take the book of Ephesians, for example. Why does Paul always start with these concepts of who Christ is and who we are in him? We are seated with him in heavenly places. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And on that basis, we step into the good works prepared beforehand for us to do. Again and again, we see this. See it at the end of Romans 11. We're worshipping this amazing, gracious God in the doxology. And then our response to that is offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And then we can set about on the basis of who we already are. We are glorious sons and daughters. So we've looked at the world's view. We've looked at the kingdom truth, the kingdom reality of who we are. We do not need to beg our generous father. We do not need to beg beg him. Uh, it's good for us to go back to that Luke 15 passage, particularly the dialogue with the eldest son again and again. Son, you've you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. If you wanted a fatted calf, you only had to ask, don't think of yourself as a slave, because that's what he called himself. I've slaved for you for years. You didn't need to do that. I slaved for God, and I'm repenting of that. That's an insult to who he is. He's a loving dad. He's a generous dad. So let's look at how this works out on the world stage because I'm spending a lot of time with clients as individuals. I mean, it just changes things so much. Let me say this, that um, I was raised a Roman Catholic And I was taught a lot of the scriptures, but I encountered Christ in a revival when I was 19 in North America, in Canada, during the Jesus People movement. I know it's hard to imagine, but I was 11 stone, hair down to my shoulders, um, with a beard. And for me, religion was like saying my prayers. 
like a child would play on the telephone. And when I encountered Christ, there was somebody on the other end. That, that was it. But the thing is that that revival ended. When I came back to the UK, I was fortunate to be surrounded by passionate lovers of Jesus. But there wasn't that kind of revival there. Later, I, I was swept up into the John Wimber um, uh, period, you know, and I loved what Wimber said and really invested myself in, in him. But that came and went. And I, and whenever anybody mentioned revival to me, I was not interested because I didn't want to invest myself anymore in a fad, you know. And I was reminded of this the other week. Um, after tea, I like to watch Eggheads. Okay? And following on from Eggheads was Michael Portillo's Great Railway Journeys. I mean, I just know how to have fun, folks. Okay? <laughs> and and it, what was fascinating was he was traveling through South Wales. I don't know if you saw this episode. You saw it, David. But it was about Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival, 1906, I think. And I think it lasted for six years. When we were in school in the first year, Roberts Learden, uh, the revival historian, came here. And it was made such an impact on me. Because he was a, a, a very rigorous uh, Historian, and he showed the good and the bad side of these major figures of all the different revivals, including Evan Roberts. During that six-year revival, the impact on the world was huge. It's estimated that over 100,000 people directly came to Christ over that period. Six years. And then it stopped, almost like a tap being turned off. Why? Because Evan Roberts could not reign in life. He burns out. He was driven by the agendas of others. And then he was vulnerable to a powerful couple who took him away for his own protection. And he was taken out of public life for a number of years. The amazing thing was, when years later, I think it was in the 40s or 50s, Roberts reappeared... Period, uh, temporarily, the manifestations reappeared. Now, we always think of uh, the Welsh revival as an exemplary revival. But what if that revival had carried on? Because the revivalists knew how to carry life knew about personal margins, knew how not to get exhausted. What if the Holy Spirit is teaching this generation to be better wineskins to carry that wine? It will be amazing. So I don't think that this is a self-absorbed solo topic. I am talking to world changers tonight. And my message to you is, Put your own mask on before helping somebody else. <laughs> Seriously. Because God is not glorified if we overextend ourselves. So, leading ourselves is our responsibility, our freedom, and our joy.
and it makes a tremendous world impact. Amen. Yes, John. How, how do you connect the uh, performance sort of culture that we all operate in with the spirit culture that you described? I think we have identified in this house that one of the areas we need courage and wisdom is in the fear of man. Let me give you an example. Um, when I began to get the kingdom approach... We had a business opportunity to win some work. And the way you do this is what they call in the trade a beauty parade. You go and do a pitch, usually some PowerPoints. And this was a big contract. When we got there, we saw a competitor coming out, and they were smirking at us, thinking they'd nailed it. We went in, and the client... And I was the one who was supposed to be on my feet and give the spiel and go through the PowerPoints. And so I started to go through it. And then I was interrupted by a guy at the back of the room who later turned out to be the leader. And he said, that's not the point of what we want at all. Fear of man would have made me say, yeah, I get that. We'll come back to that later. I'd like you to see the rest of what we're doing. Instead, I said, well, then I don't think the rest of this presentation is relevant. And instead of sending us off packing, we sat down and had a really good conversation, and we won the work. Now, I'm not saying that the moral of the story is that it will always happen. No, I'm not saying that. But you need courage in the face of fear of powerful people. That's when you begin to be a culture changer. Because you're modeling something different that people find attractive. I don't think Joseph went along with the crowd of magicians when Pharaoh invited him in to his council. He was very different. He had the spirit of God on him. Very good. Very good. Somebody else? I think I've got this right, but just correct me. Um, so I'm presuming you're kind of working mainly with not yet Christians in your job and stuff. So obviously you've shared with us about like identity and things. How do you translate when you're chatting to them when they've not maybe got that framework of thinking? How do you translate what you've just said to us to them? Yeah, it's important not to use jargon. But terms like calling out the golden people, people in the world are very hungry to hear the best called out of them. Again, I was um, at a university this time where I was meeting one of the key decision makers for the first time. And I happened to mention this phrase, I call, try and call out the golden people. And I'd only been speaking to her for, for a few minutes. She was the director of a big department in this university. And she says, well, how do you do that? I said, well, let me show you. I prayed a quick arrow prayer and then prophesied to her. She didn't know it was prophesy, prophecy, but she was blessed. Sometimes people do not need to know the dynamics of the kingdom to be drawn towards you. 
And again, I say, that's not a formula. It will not always work. But we can be gloriously different in our work. Questions are drawing you out the gold, aren't they? So, out of Patrick. This is where Sorry, I get so it wrong. Pete's got Let's do a bit more. <laughs> can you... I, I know that you've done this. Can you just explain to people how you've used the principles of the culture of honour and applied them into your workplace and how they... Yeah. Culture of honour is really sense-making and frankly, I wish I had grasped the culture of honour earlier. It would save me a lot of problems. But um, because I'm a management consultant, I begin to see things in the world, in business models and so on, that are straight out of keep your love on. There, for example, there's a, a technique called appreciative inquiry. What we do mostly when we go into organizations, and management consultants are infamous for this, is they'll say, oh, you, you, know, you really need my help here. It's bad. You know, a bit like a car mechanic going, you know. <laughs> and they make the client feel wretched. The appreciative inquiry approach is to find out what's really good in that organization first and then to build out from that. Now, to me, that's so aligned with the culture of honor. And people love it. People love to, to, uh, for you to appreciate what's best and finest in their organization. And, of course, that's one of the major strategies for influence in heaven and healthcare, isn't it, Pete? That we don't go into the health service saying, you're rubbish. We go in saying, you're doing a great job. And we love what you're doing. And we encourage them. And on that basis, they will include us in their council. Okay. Somebody else? Uh, it's just a reflection. I would like to share. I don't know whether you have any tips, but um, as a school teacher, I know that the message we tend to give our student is, you know, believe in yourself, be self-confident. And there are times when he doesn't sit with me, and I was thinking, you know, that they, they can't do it, especially if they've got uh, low self-esteem. So, you know, I try to encourage, like you said, to see what's good and to call it forth. But it's just that message, you know, be self-confident and believe in yourself, pursue your dreams, you know. I don't know whether yeah. you've got any... Oh Do you know, the world's wisdom is so inferior. You know, like, uh, there's this rise of Zen mindfulness at the moment. I know there are Christian flavors of it. But we've had meditation for centuries. Prayerful meditation, scripture meditation, Ignatian spirituality, all of that. And it's far superior because it's based on truth. Ultimately, the world gets to this. Fake it until you make it. In other words, if you try and kid yourself that you are great, eventually you'll believe it. That's so vacuous. When we know who we are. The big revelation for me in joining the school was I was permitted, I was allowed in the streets of Gravesend, for example, to prophesy to people who did not yet know, yet know Christ did not yet know that they're greatly loved. And that's been such a release for me. 
And we can do that in our classrooms, in our surgeries, in our wards, wherever we are. And it's it's based on truth. It's not a make-believe system. So this is not a question, but it answers a question for me because um, since I've been, ever since I was first a Christian, which is eight years ago, God has said to me like to to uh, speak to the the rich people that have got everything, and I've always kind of like I've tried it, but they've always got everything. They don't need God. They've got it. And uh, I said to a pastor, an Indian pastor who started lots of churches, you know. It's okay that you speak to very poor people, so they, they see something that they can have. If they, you know, if they come to Christ, they can have more. But what about people who've got everything? They don't need Christ because they think they've got everything. He said, well, you've just got to find what they need. Hmm. He didn't elaborate on that. And hmm. I've, I've looked for that, and this kind of answers that question. Because hmm. everyone wants to be something, don't they? And, but when they get to be that something, it's not enough. They want to be something more. Yeah. And they keep going and keep going. There's always an imperative to be something more. But yeah. with this, you start from your maximum potential, and there's nothing yeah. more to do. Yeah. And so, if you say to this person, like, you can be this maximum potential, right from the start, it's kind of that you've given them everything they want, right at the start without having to work for it, if you see mm. what I mean. You yeah. don't have to keep going for this more and more and more. It's, um, yeah. it's quite a powerful thing, I think. Yeah. The spiritual reality is you cannot serve God and mammon. And Jesus himself uh, could not persuade the rich young ruler because he was wealthy. And that, you know, it, it, it's a reality. It's really tough. But I think we continue to ask for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in, in relationships as we meet people and we show them a better way. It's their choice ultimately. I feel sorry for the rich. I feel sorry uh, for the slaves in suits, as Andy Mason calls them. You know, for example, in uh, Canary Wharf or in the city, you, we may have some people here from corporate finance. Um, our daughter's in the Bank of America. Uh, she's okay, though. But the, you, in that, those sort of industries, you can be paid a lot. But it's a contract. Because the number one priority is the job. Not your family. Not your kids. Not your husband. Not your hobbies and friends. Not your God. It's the job. If they say jump, you jump. Because they pay you a lot. And I feel sorry for those slaves. Yeah. Well, that's the last one. Yeah. As someone in a suit who works at Canary Wharf in finance. (laughs) (laughs) Bless Um, you that you're here. (laughs) For me, the key is to choose my identity. Yes. Um, and we are given freedom to choose. We don't have to be um, bound by the system, bound by the management. We can be who we are. We have the freedom to do that. And as we do that, and as we choose to be, people see that that confuses them, um, but they see something that's different, and they will respond positively nine times out of ten. That's the key. If you choose, you're not a slave. Yeah.